Hello, I'm Phil Farrow, Chief Meteorologist at WSBN-TV in South Florida, and this is Weather or Not. Hello and welcome to Weather or Not. In this episode, we'll travel back 200 million years and talk about a flying reptile that came in many sizes, from one that could fit in the palm of your hand to one as big as a small aircraft, and you have an opportunity to see what they look like, but only for a limited time. So pterosaurs were the first vertebrates to evolve flight. Um, right now, the only other vertebrates that have flight are bats and birds. Pterosaurs in South Florida, and Skip Uricchio from the Frost Museum has the prehistoric tour. Plus, we'll talk about the Ring of Fire, and it's not the popular one in the Pacific. So sometimes when the moon is farther away from the Earth in its orbit, it appears smaller to us. And so it's actually not big enough to completely block out the sun. And so uh, we see a ring of fire around the edge of the moon. And speaking of the moon, when NASA goes back, it ain't leaving. Two, one, zero. The Artemis program will send the first woman, the first person of color to the south pole of the moon. And also this time, we're not just gonna stop off and go back, we're gonna go and actually do sustained exploration. Meteorologist Brent Cameron will have more on the Ring of Fire lunar event and NASA's next step to conquer the moon. We begin with the pterosaur, spelled kind of strange, P-T-E-R-O-S-A-U-R-S. -E it's a relative of the well-known pterodactyl and a cousin of the dinosaur. But let me set the stage. It is the Mesozoic era, Greek for middle life one of three major time periods in Earth's history. 200 million years ago is when pterosaurs first uh, started evolving. Uh, they were present on Earth for 155 million years, and they've been extinct for 66 million years. Our planet was a much different world back then, with one major ocean and one major continent by the name of Pangaea. The Earth was just starting to bounce back after a huge mass extinction. Plants were different, and so were the animals. Dinosaurs ruled. But a cousin of the dinosaur had taken flight during this era, and it was called the pterosaur. The pterosaur is a flighted lizard. Um, they are not dinosaurs, they're cousin to dinosaurs. They existed at the time of dinosaurs, so dinosaurs are running around on the ground and pterosaurs are flying up over their heads. But they were not birds in the traditional sense. For starters, they had no feathers. These tough bristle-like fibers, almost similar to fur, but they weren't, it wasn't fur. When their remains are uncovered, they tell us more as to what they were. So the, the few you know, fossil records that we have, uh, we extrapolate based on, you know, the largest pterosaur, which is the 33-foot wingspan, um, was, is the largest known flighted vertebrate ever. 
This is the Whether or Not podcast. You can find us on Apple, Google, or Spotify with a new issue every Tuesday. If you have a question that we can answer on an upcoming podcast or have a comment, please send me an email at pfarrow at wsvn.com. You can always follow us on Twitter and Facebook at 7Weather and, of course, live on air at WSVN7. Now it's time for our segment, Seven Questions with Skip Eurekio from the Frost Museum. One, how big were these things? So pterosaurs range from the size of flight, or I'm sorry, the size of a sparrow, pretty small, to wingspan of 33 feet, and that's the size of a small airplane. They stood about 20 feet tall. Um, if you if you compare it to a man, and they walked on all four feet. So their their wings are um, are, are made of, of skin, flaps of skin, but the their bone structure in what we would we would call their hands, uh, their fourth finger is heavily elongated to support that wing. Two. Do we know what their diet consisted of? It ranged from uh, obviously the small ones ate small insects to the large ones ate other pterosaurs. Three. Now, the fossil record, how spread out is it? Is it just a North America uh, animal? Is it found worldwide? What, what is the track record? They were, they were found worldwide. Uh, they were found on every single continent. So the fossils have been found all over the world. Have we found uh, any fossils here in Florida, either small or large? No, not in Florida. Florida is so sandy um, and limestone. There's not very many fossils that are found in Florida naturally. Four. Have you ever found or has there ever been found a complete specimen? Yes. Yeah, there are, there are multiple of them, um, from small ones up to, you know, medium size, you know, a wingspan of 15 to 20 feet. Um, their eggs have been found with the pterosaur side. Um, and they, they needed to be, you know, the pterosaurs need to die in an area that where they would become covered in silt or dirt fairly quickly because their, their bone structure and their bodies were so delicate. So uh, pterosaur fossils are very rare and special. Pterosaurs had hollow bones similar to birds, though they were in no way related to birds. Birds evolved from dinosaurs. Uh, pterosaurs evolved separately. Five. Now, you said that they've been found all over the world. Was there one hot spot for them? Was there one habitat that they really lived in? No, I'd say, you know, because the, the Earth back then was a very different climate. Um, they're still finding uh, pterosaur fossils. It, it's for in paleontology, it's pretty, pretty hot to find, uh, still find pterosaurs. The large pterosaur that I mentioned, the 33 foot one, um, they just found a bone, um, a humerus bone one of the arm bones um, in Romania in 2002, which they were able to extrapolate uh, based on the size of that one bone, the size of the animal. Six. So how did you guys come up with the exhibition that you have now? What, what, what did you use? How did you put it together? So the exhibition we have is um, it's called Pterosaurs Flight in the Age of Dinosaurs. It's sponsored um, or presented by Nicholas Children Hospital, but it's organized by the American Museum of Natural History in New York. 
So they're the ones that put it together uh, using their scientists from all over the world, um, fossils from all over, all over the world as well. And there's some great models. There's um, some really big, the large pterosaurs mentioned, has, there's a life-size model in the gallery. So when people come see the exhibit, they can see a life-size 33-foot wingspan pterosaur above their head. Seven. What does the exhibit show? Yeah, the, the exhibit does show that we have models um, and we have interactive. So there's uh, the, the models show uh, what we think the coloration would be. And that's all based on what animals are living today. Um, they did not have feathers. Uh, they were cold-blooded lizards. They were covered in uh, these tough bristle-like fibers, almost similar to fur, but there weren't, it wasn't fur. So it show, our models show that. Um, our models show some of the elaborate head crests, um, the feeding, the mouth um, has been evolved. You know, the fish feeding pterosaurs have a different type of mouth structure as the um, insect eating has different ones. Um, really, really fun interactive in this exhibition is called uh, Fly Like a Pterosaur, which uses motion sensing technology, which enables you to move your arms and fly like a pterosaur and fly down next to the volcano and catch a fish and then flap back up um, around other pterosaurs. Whether or not, we'll be right back. A record storm season during a pandemic made 2020 unforgettable. This year, count on the seven weather team once again to do what we do best, keep you safe. The latest alerts, the best coverage. That's why we're the Storm Station, 7 News. Welcome back to the Weather or Not podcast. The Ring of Fire happens this week, a one-of-a-kind lunar eclipse. Meteorologist Brent Cameron with this story. So a lot of us like to look up and watch the sky, and lately it's been giving us quite a special show, a little more entertaining than usual. And in the night sky recently, we were treated with the biggest supermoon of 2021 and a lunar eclipse at the same time. And that's not all as we approach June the 10th. It's the so-called Ring of Fire eclipse. Here to talk with these events and more is NASA science communicator, Molly Wasser. Molly, there seems to be growing excitement when it comes to following these events in the sky. Sometimes it's even kind of magical looking up there, wouldn't you say? I agree. Um, I mean, I think my job is really just to encourage people to look up. You know, uh, I do a lot of social media. So I say um, by looking at your phone, I, my goal is to get you to look away from your phone, to look up. And for us in South Florida, it's a little more difficult at times because there's a lot of light pollution that kind of gets in the way. How would you say the best viewing actually would be? Right, so there is a lot of light pollution. It's always great to try to find a darker area to view the sky. Um, but something I love about our moon and getting uh, to you know uh, talk about our moon is that the moon is visible from everywhere. It's visible from Times Square. It's visible from the the darkest rural areas. So it's really something that everyone can share in observing. And along with that, we really don't even need the special equipment that you at NASA have with, with, when it comes to those instruments and such. We can view just with our own eyes. 
Exactly. Um, the moon, you can look at it uh, just with your eyes. Um, if you have binoculars, that's a great tool to use to view the moon. You can see a lot of craters with binoculars. And then if you happen to have a telescope, you can then zoom in more, even more on the moon. But um, it's a great astronomical object to look at because uh, there's so many things that you can see with just your eyes. Now, recently, Molly, we had two consecutive months with full supermoons, supermoons, even though it's not an astronomical term, is an illusion that the moon appears larger in the sky when that happens? So it's actually not an illusion. The moon, during a supermoon, um, it's not an astronomical term, but it refers to when the moon is a little bit closer to Earth than average. So the moon's orbit is not a perfect circle. Sometimes it's closer to the earth and sometimes it's farther away. And during a supermoon, it's a full moon when the moon is at its closest point to earth in its orbit. So it actually is bigger and brighter. And it's still quite a few miles away, something like 200 and some thousand, right? Yeah, it's about, it's about, you got that number, it's about uh, 200,000 miles away, um, or about 30 times the, the uh, diameter of the Earth. Okay, and Molly, would you say the opposite of a supermoon is a solar eclipse that we sometimes call a ring of fire? Is that opposite of a supermoon because it's farther away? So, um, the opposite of a supermoon, sometimes it's called, I've heard, I've seen it called a micro moon, um, but it's when the moon is at its farthest point in its uh, oval orbit around the earth. A solar eclipse is what you can say the opposite of a lunar eclipse. So a lunar eclipse occurs when the earth goes in between the sun and the moon, and we actually see Earth's shadow on the moon. And then a solar eclipse happens when the moon is in between the sun and the Earth, and the moon blocks the sun um, from Earth's perspective. Now, these events aren't all that common, right? I mean, how would you say, how often do these come about? Lunar and solar eclipses uh, both happen uh, maybe a two times a year, um, a few times a year, but solar eclipses are, it's quite, quite hard to see because a lot of times you'd have to get on a boat and go into the middle of the ocean to see them. Uh, so this next solar eclipse, uh, some people on land will actually get to see. And you make up a, a good really point there because it always seems like some of the best viewing appears to be the place that I'm not. Sometimes it's usually on the other side of the United States or the other side of the world. Does it all eventually kind of balance itself out? It does eventually balance it out. Um, and actually, the next solar eclipse that will be visible in North America is on April 8th, 2024. It won't uh, be a total solar eclipse in Miami, but if you travel not too far, um, you will get to see a total solar eclipse. So I would highly recommend that because there's not going to be another one in North America for over 100 years. Wow. And that's when the sun is completely blocked out by the moon, right? Exactly. Yeah. So there was one in 2017 um, that I, that was 
I had the opportunity to see that it was it was incredible. It's very bizarre because it gets very dark in the middle of the day. Um, so if you do have a chance to go check that out um, at on and nasa.gov we have maps um, that show exactly where the path is that you'll get to see a total solar eclipse and molly some people describe kind of like you just did there with a total solar eclipse the sky goes dark basically but is that more of an exaggeration is it more like a twilight period instead of everything going black yeah, it is. It's a little more like a twilight period. I actually, um, during the last solar eclipse, uh, I was with uh, some people talking about, uh, you know, what was going on. And some people are saying, it looks like an Instagram filter out here. <laughs> so I thought that was a, a funny comparison. It really is. And I want to mention, because a lot of us don't have the patience to wait, you know, or the uh, chance necessarily to... Uh, uh, to wait until 2024. There is a couple things that aren't quite as impressive as maybe the total solar eclipse, but getting back to that so-called ring of fire eclipse that will be on June the 10th. Now, what can we uh, expect to see at that point? What is it? It's obviously not fire in the sky, but does it resemble kind of uh, a fiery appearance? Yeah, so um, it's an annular eclipse. So um, it actually relates to what we were talking about earlier with supermoons and micromoons. So sometimes when the moon is farther away from the Earth in its orbit, it appears smaller to us. And so it's actually not big enough to completely block out the sun. And so uh, we see a ring of fire around the edge of the moon. And I have to emphasize, uh, this is not safe to look at with Naked eye, you do oh, wow. need um, special tools to view this. Otherwise, you could seriously damage your eyes. Um, but that's the type of thing you'll see is a ring of the sun around the moon. I appreciate the uh, the tip there and the advice. Uh, we're going to be looking for uh, that to occur. And as we talk real quickly about some kind of uh, when I was preparing for this, we were I was looking at some myth busting and I learned something new that way back when this was back in the biblical times when there was a solar or a lunar eclipse because of the blockage of natural light people were actually forbidden from doing things like taking a bath or even drinking water doing during that eclipse are you aware of other kinds of uh, myths or uh, reactions to these phenomena um well i've i've heard all sorts of things um I've had people say, why can't I use my phone during the eclipse? And I, and I think, I don't know. I don't know why you can't. Um, it's perfectly fine to, to do, you know, normal um, activities during an eclipse. Um, something that is interesting is during a solar eclipse, a lot of times the animals will exhibit different behavior because they'll uh, notice that it's getting dark. Uh -huh. And so, um, they'll change up their, their patterns. So during the last eclipse, there were a lot of uh, scientists studying animal behavior during the eclipse. Very interesting. So people and animals, of course, this has gone back uh, since time began that we've uh, experienced these things. If we could go back to one other topic uh, before we go, uh, Molly, it's going back to the moon, actually, in the topic, as well as 
literally going back to the moon. <laughs> um, can you tell us, I understand right now there's a lot of activity going on as we prepare to make a return visit uh, following the Apollo mission. Exactly. So NASA, uh, at NASA, we're very busy working on our Artemis program. So Artemis was Apollo's twin sister. So this is a true follow-up to the Apollo program. So with Apollo, we sent astronauts to the surface of the moon, but they all went to one area really of the moon, um, around the equator of the moon. On, and so uh, this would be like if you were visiting Earth and you only went to maybe the Amazon rainforest. And so you think, okay, Earth is you know a very wet and uh, planet with a lot of trees, a lot of animals. So uh, we know that's not the case on Earth um, for everywhere. So we want to go to the South Pole of the moon, which is a quite a different environment than uh, where we went with Apollo. So the Artemis program will send the first woman, the first person of color to the South Pole of the moon. And there's a lot of interesting resources there like water, uh, not flowing water, but water uh, ice deep within rocks. And so we're really excited about that. And also this time, we're not just gonna stop off and go back, we're gonna go and actually do sustained exploration. Very interesting. And what's the timeline for that? When will that happen, do you think? So first we're going to send some robotic explorers to do a little scouting for us. And that will be within the next few years. Perfect. Okay. And finally, Molly, where can our listeners go to learn more about the moon and other of these topics that we so appreciate you telling us about? Yeah, so you can follow NASA Moon on social media, and you could visit moon.nasa.gov, where you can learn all about our moon and different things to look at. It's fascinating. Thanks a lot for joining us, Molly Wasser, science communicator with NASA. We appreciate your time. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you, Brent. That's it for this edition of Weather or Not. Next week, find out what happened to all the sea urchins and how a new effort is trying to bring them back. Meteorologist Erica Delgado will dive into that story. Plus, a mysterious disease is making coral sick just off the coast of Florida. Can a simple drug that's been around for decades help save them? Meteorologist Vivian Gonzalez will have that story. That's next week on our nautical-themed edition of Weather or Not. If you have a question that we can answer on an upcoming podcast or have a comment, please send me an email at pfaro at wsbn.com. It would also be nice if you would subscribe to our humble podcast. You can always follow us on Twitter and Facebook at 7Weather and, of course, live on air at WSVN7. We'll see you next week.